essay entitled Work We Must, But the Lunch is Free was originally delivered April 20, 1982 to the Cannon Hinckley Club in Salt Lake City. It was later published in Nibley's book Approaching Zion. Work We Must, But the Lunch is Free Bounty from on high, all or nothing. The famous geologist Sir Julian Huxley used to go from school to school in the manner of a traveling revivalist, preaching his gospel of evolution. In the evolutionary pattern of thought, there is no longer need or room for the supernatural. The earth was not created, it evolved. So did all the animals and plants that inhabit it, including our human selves, mind and soul as well as brain and body. So did religion. He was fond of reminding his audiences that there is no Santa Claus and that mature people should give up wishful thinking about such things as gifts and blessings, spiritual or material, bestowed from on high. The high school youth of my day took great satisfaction in reciting the words of Omar Khayyam, and that inverted bowl we call the sky, where under crawling cooped we live and die, Lift not the hands to it for help, for it rolls impotently on as thou or I. This is, as one eminent commentator on the scientific scene, Hoymar von Ditfort, puts it, that modern view, still current today, that the earth with everything in it is dangling in the isolation of a universe whose cold majesty disdains it. Deep down we are probably even proud of the detachment with which we accept our true situation. Much of the cynicism and nihilism characteristic of the modern psyche can be traced to this chilling conception. But within the past decade or so, leaders in scientific research have begun to express the opposite opinion to this, saying that they more than suspect the possibility that the somebody out there cares, that is, there is direction and purpose to what is going on, and that gifts sent down from above are more than a childish tradition. The first of these ideas was recently expressed by the biologist Lewis Thomas. I cannot make peace with the randomness doctrine. I cannot abide the notion of purposelessness and blind chance in nature. And yet I do not know what to put in its place for the quieting of my mind. We talk, some of us anyway, about the absurdity of the human situation. But we do this because we do not know how we fit in or what we are for. The stories we used to make up to explain ourselves do not make sense anymore, and we have run out of new stories for the moment. A grand old-timer in biology, the 1937 Nobel Prize winner, Albert St. Georgie, recently wrote, According to present ideas, this change in the nucleic acid, which determines the nature of protein molecules formed in a cell, is accomplished through random variation, if I were trying to pass a biology examination, I would vigorously support this theory. Yet, in my mind, I have never been able to accept fully the idea that the adaption and harmonious building of those complex biological systems involving simultaneous changes in thousands of genes are the results of molecular accidents. The probability that all of these genes should have changed together through random variation is practically zero. I have always been seeking some higher organizing principle that is leading the living system toward improvement and adaptation. 
I know this is biological heresy. For example, I do not think that the extremely complex speech center of the human brain was created by random mutations that happened to improve the chances of survival of individuals. I cannot accept the notion that this capacity arose through random alterations, relying on the survival of the fittest. I believe that some principle must have guided the development toward the kind of speech center that was needed. More surprising is the story now unfolding as various fields of research combine to give us a picture of gifts being showered upon us from on high. The literal reading of the Santa Claus or Kachina myth. Thus, Buckminster Fuller says, Energies emanating from celestial regions remote from planet Earth are indeed converging and accumulating in planet Earth's biosphere, both as radiation and as matter. We aboard Earth are receiving gratis just the amount of prime energy wealth to regenerate biological life on board. Van Allen belts, the ionosphere, stratosphere, and atmosphere all refractively differentiate the radiation frequencies, separating them into a variety of indirect life-sustaining energy transactions. Vegetation is the prime energy impounder. From stellar radiation, the biologicals are continually multiplying their beautiful cellular, molecular, and atomic structurings that complete the equation. Certainly the Earth is not the center of the universe, writes Fon Ditfort, but this crowded Earth is a focal point in the universe, one of perhaps innumerable places in the cosmos where life and consciousness could flourish. What a concentration of mighty forces upon one more or less tiny point. Is it possible that someone does have us in mind? This is the thesis the famous astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle is now pursuing. In a talk given at Caltech, he begins with the strange fact that there are distributed in all directions throughout the immensity of space particles whose presence is revealed by the way in which they obscure the galaxies everywhere, making them all look hazy, whence their original designation as nebulous or fuzzy clouds. After almost 20 years of investigation, the inescapable conclusion has been reached that the grains had to be made up largely of organic material. Like the biologist quoted above, Hoyle too, as he puts it, was constantly plagued by the thought that the number of ways in which even a single enzyme could be wrongly constructed was greater than the number of all the atoms in the universe, and yet these were correctly constructed. So try as I would, I couldn't convince myself that even the whole universe would be sufficient to find life by random processes, by what are called the blind forces of nature. That is where he too balks. By far the simplest way to arrive at the correct sequences of amino acids in the enzymes would be by thought, not random processes, rather than accept the fantastically small probability of life having arisen through the blind forces of nature, it seemed better to suppose that the origin of life was a deliberate intellectual act. One of the most exciting things about the process, he finds, is that it is still going on, and always has been, and to all purposes always will be. Instead of beginning with a single cell on this one lone planet billions of years ago, Life has been brought down to Earth from realms above in massive installments. It was quickly apparent that the facts pointed overwhelmingly against life being of terrestrial origin. 
Here Hoyle pursues a long line of argument and review of research. That is, because a few comets are breaking up and scattering their contents all the time, the process was not relegated to the remote past. Taking the view, palatable to most ordinary folk, but exceedingly unpalatable to scientists, that there is an enormous intelligence abroad in the universe, it becomes necessary to write blind forces out of astronomy, as Thomas and do out of biology. As if to counteract these growing heresies, the old Darwinian view is being puffed today for all it is worth in a half-dozen prestigious TV documentaries in which we are treated to endless footage of creatures ranging from amoebas to giant carnivores stalking, seizing, and with concentrated deliberation, soberly crunching, munching, swallowing, and ingesting other insects, fishes, birds, and mammals. This, we are told again and again, is the real process by which all things were created. Everything is lunching on everything else, all the time, and that, children, is what makes us what we are. That is the key to progress. And note it well, all these creatures, when they are not lunching, are hunting for lunch. They all have to work for it. There is no free lunch in the world of nature, the real world. Lunch is the meaning of life, and everything lunches on something else. Nature red in tooth and claw. Tennyson's happy phrase suited the Victorian mind to perfection. He got the idea from Darwin, as Spencer did his even happier phrase, survival of the fittest. Darwin gave the blessing of science to men who had been hoping and praying for holy sanction to an otherwise immoral way of life. Malthus had shown that there will never be enough lunch for everybody, and therefore people would have to fight for it. And Ricardo had shown by his iron law of wages that those left behind and gobbled up in the struggle for lunch had no just cause for complaint. Darwin showed that this was an inexorable law of nature by which the race was actually improved. Meall and Spencer made it the cornerstone of the gospel of free enterprise, the weaker must fall by the way if the stock is to be improved. This was movingly expressed in J.D. Rockefeller's discourse on the American Beauty Rose, which, he said, can be produced only by sacrificing the early buds which grow up around it. This is not an evil tendency in business. It is merely the working out of a law of nature and a law of God. In this divinely appointed game of grabs, to share the lunch prize would be futile, counterproductive, nay, immoral. Since there is not enough to go around, whoever gets his fill must be taking it from others. That is the way the game is played. In Liverpool, Manchester, Preston, or anywhere else in England, as Brigham Young reported the scene in 1856, workers knew that their employers would make them do their work for nothing and then compel them to live on roots and grass if their physical organization could endure it. Therefore, says the mechanic, if I can get anything out of you, I will call it a godsend, and does what he can to rip off the boss. If he gets caught, he is punished, yet he is only playing the same game as his employer. Three years after Brigham made his observation, the origin of species appeared, putting the unimpeachable seal of science on the lunch grab as the supreme law of life and progress. 
and it was expressly to refute that philosophy on which Brigham Young founded Brigham Young University in 1875. We have enough and to spare at present in these mountains of schools where the teachers dare not mention the principles of the gospel to their pupils, but have no hesitancy in introducing into the classroom the theories of Huxley or Darwin or of Meall and the false political economy which contends against cooperation and the united order. This course I am resolutely and uncompromisingly opposed to. As a beginning in this direction, I have endowed the Brigham Young Academy at Provo and am now seeking to do the same thing in this city, Salt Lake City. With his usual unfailing insight, President Young saw it was the economic and political rather than the scientific and biological implications of natural selection that were the real danger and most counter to the gospel. The Two Employers But what about those goodies that actually descend from the sky, according to the new astronomy? They take us back to our Latter-day Saint creation story, in which all the earth's food supply is indeed brought from above, as seeds of all kinds are carried down and planted in a special program of preparing the earth for its great calling. Adam, we have created for you this earth, and have placed in it everything you could possibly need, all finished and ready for use. Help yourself of every tree thou mayest freely eat. Was Adam idle and bored, his character undermined by such easy living? Hardly. He went happily about his work of taking good care of the place, he enjoyed frequent conversation with angels, and in the cool of the evening he strolls with the Lord himself. What a vast expansion of mind and spirit that evokes! And to spend one's days with a woman of infinite understanding, whom age could not wither nor custom stale, was enough to fill the days with endless delight. When Adam left the garden, he went right on with his work of cultivating the earth himself, and his numerous posterity engaging in the three activities that are recommended as the proper way of life to all who work in the vineyard. Behold, I say unto you, that you shall let your time be devoted to the studying of the scriptures, and to preaching, and to confirming the church, and to performing your labors on the land. Study, the work of the kingdom, and the cultivating of the soil were Adam's calling for almost a millennium, and he never got bored. Though no longer in paradise, he enjoyed the visitation and instruction of heavenly visitors, who undertook to teach him how he was to return again to his pre-existent splendor, with enhanced qualifications and credentials for what lay ahead. To merit such promotion, he was to be tried and tested while he was here, and for that express purpose Adam had to come to an understanding with another type of visitor, a person of enormous ambition and cunning who was purposely turned loose in the place to put Adam and Eve to the test. What he tempts them with is lunch. We can put the situation in terms of two employers who are competing for the services of the man Adam and his posterity, who are intentionally placed in the middle between them. On the one hand, the devil inviteth and enticeth continually to work for him, while on the other, God inviteth and enticeth continually to work for him. The first employer offers us lunch, and since lunch is something everybody must have, he is in a powerful position to bargain. He explains that this glorious earth is his private estate, 
that it all belongs to him to the ends thereof. In particular, he owns the mineral rights and the media of exchange, by controlling which he enjoys the willing cooperation of the military, ecclesiastical, and political establishments, and rules with magnificent uproar. He keeps everything under tight control, though, for all the blood and horror, nobody makes any trouble in his world, from the rivers to the ends thereof. Well can he ask Adam, What is it you want? For he claims to be the god of this world. And the Lord himself grants him the title of Prince of this world. All who are not working for him on his estate, he charges with trespassing, including even heavenly messengers, whom he accuses of spying out his vast property with an eye to taking over the whole of it. But he is willing to make a deal, if they have money. To have merely sufficient for your needs, however, is not what he has in mind. That would be the equivalent of the free lunch, lamely ignoring the endless possibilities for acquiring power and gain that the place offers. This developer has a vision of unlimited sweep and power, you can have anything in this world for money. Beginning, of course, with lunch. Because money is the only thing that will get you lunch, and since everybody must have lunch, that is the secret of his control. This almost mystical identity of money with lunch we see in the reports of Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and others of their missions in England, where people were literally starving to death in the streets, while many in the city were living in the greatest opulence. The trouble was that the poor people had to starve because they could get no money, and they could get no money because the factories were closed, and the factories were closed because of an unusually severe winter, an act of God. So there was plainly nothing to be done and no one to blame. One does not oppose the laws of nature and of God. There is no free lunch. Brother Kimball tells how his family in this fair land lived for weeks on boiled milkweed. They had worked very hard, but still there was no lunch for them, because the money they had saved up by their diligent toil was suddenly worthless. It is money alone that gets you lunch. Mere work is not enough. Your prospective employer explains how that is. The money part is necessary to keep things under control. For the Kimballs, lunch was life itself the bottom line of any economy. What would happen, then, if lunch was always provided free for them? Would they not lose their most immediate incentive to work, the need for lunch money? And since money, as they tell you in Economics 101, is the power to command goods and services, who would ever do any work again? How can you command somebody to work for you if he doesn't need your lunch? That, the shrewd employer explains, is why he must never cease reminding one and all in his domain that there is no free lunch. It is that great teaching which keeps his establishment going. All I have to do to bring my people into line, he says, is to ask them, if you leave my employ, what will become of you? That scares the daylights out of them, from the man on the dreary assembly line to the chairman of the board. They are all scared stiff. And so I get things done. So let us go across the road for an interview with the other employer. To our surprise, he answers our first question with an emphatic, Forget about lunch. Don't even give it a thought. Take no thought of what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, or wherewith ye shall be clothed. 
But what will become of me then, you ask? Not to worry. We will preach the gospel to you, and then you will find out that lunch should be the least of your concerns. Let Brigham Young explain the situation. We have been permitted to come here to go to school, to acquire certain knowledge, and take a number of tests to prepare us for greater things hereafter. This whole life, in fact, is a state of probation. While we are at school, our generous patron has provided us with all the necessities of living that we will need to carry us through. Imagine, then, that at the end of the first school year, your kind benefactor pays the school a visit. He meets you and asks you how you are doing. Oh, you say, I am doing very well, thanks to your bounty. Are you studying a lot? Yes, I am making good progress. What subjects are you studying? Oh, I am studying courses in how to get more lunch. You study that? All the time? Yes. I thought of studying some other subjects. Indeed, I would love to study them. Some of them are so fascinating. But after all, it's the bread and butter courses that count. This is the real world, you know. There is no free lunch. But, my dear boy, I'm providing you with that right now. Yes, for the time being, and I am grateful. But my purpose in life is to get more and better lunches. I want to go right to the top, the executive suite, the Marriott lunch. But that is not the work I wanted you to do here, says the patron. The question in our minds ought to be, says Brigham Young, what will advance the general interests and increase intelligence in the minds of the people? To do this should be our constant study in preference to how we shall secure that farm or that garden, that is, where the lunch comes from. We cannot worship our God in public meeting or kneel down to pray in our families without the images of earthly possessions rising up in our minds to distract them and make our worship and our prayers unprofitable. Lunch can easily become the one thing the whole office looks forward to all morning, a distraction, a decoy, like sex. It is a passing need that can only too easily become an engrossing obsession. Brigham says, It is a folly for a man to love any other kind of property and possessions. One that places his affections upon such things does not understand that they are made for the comfort of the creature and not for his adoration. They are made to sustain and preserve the body, while procuring the knowledge and wisdom that pertain to God and His kingdom, the school motive, in order that we may preserve ourselves and live forever in His presence. And about work? I once had a university fellowship for which I had to agree not to accept any gainful employment for the period of a year. All living necessities were supplied. I was actually forbidden to work for lunch. Was it free lunch? I never worked so hard in my life, but I never gave lunch a thought. I wasn't supposed to. I was eating only so that I could do my work. I was not working only so that I could eat. And that is what the Lord asks us, to forget about lunch and do His work, and the lunch will be taken care of. Not being an economist, I must here turn to the scriptures, where I find a succinct but detailed and lucid statement of the lunch situation that is, of God's economic precepts for Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses distributes the lunch. After Moses had led the children of Israel for forty years, he summed up all the rules and regulations by which they were to live 
in a great farewell address, which was to be preserved in writing on stone and parchment, and periodically and publicly read to all the people. All prosperity and life itself in the new promised land would depend on the strict observance of the law. Certain general principles were to govern every aspect of life among the children of the covenant. First, this is the law by which you are to live, and the only law. It is your life, and through this ye shall prolong your days in the land. Second, however impractical and unrealistic these rules and precepts may seem to the world, you are not of the world, but wholly withdrawn from it, a people chosen, set apart, removed, peculiar, sanctified, above all people that are on the face of the earth, and holy people. Israel is under a special covenant with God that has nothing to do with the normal economy of men. They are forbidden to do some things and required to do others that may seem perfectly absurd to outsiders. Third, the legal aspects of the thing are not what counts. The business of lawyers is to get around the law, but you must have it written in your hearts, to keep it with all thine heart and with all thy soul, because you really love the Lord and his law, which begins and ends with the love of God and each other. It must be a natural thing with you, taken for granted, your way of life as you think and talk about it all the time, so that your children grow up breathing it as naturally as air. Fourth, remember that everything you have is a free gift from God. You had nothing, and he gave you everything. Fifth, never get the idea that you have earned what you have. Beware lest when thou hast eaten and art full, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God. And you say to yourself, My power, ability, and might of mine hand, hard work, meaning the strength of my hand, or my own two hands, hath gotten me this wealth, fortune. But you must bear in mind that God alone has given it all to you, and that it is not for any merit of yours, but for the sake of confirming promises made to your fathers that he has done it. If you forget that for a moment, you will be destroyed. And while our flocks and herds were increasing upon the mountains and the plains, said Brigham, the eyes of the people seemed closed to the operations of the invisible hand of providence, and they were prone to say, It is our own handiwork, it is our labor that has performed this. Sixth, the gifts of God have come to you not because of your righteousness, because you are not righteous, and have in no wise deserved what you have received, nor are you worthy of it. It is all given to fulfill promises made to righteous men before you. Moses' parting word to the people after forty years of struggling with them was, Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, ye have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death. As the law is laid down to Israel by Moses, each precept is accompanied by a reminder of their endless obligation to Jehovah, who took them in his charge when they were the lowest of the lowly, and brought them with signs and wonders to a land where they have everything. With this in mind, God expects them to be as loving, merciful, and open-handed in dealing with down-and-outers, as he has always been with them. With this goes a promise, that no matter how much they give to others, 
he will always make it up to them many times over. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee. Let us remember that Israel had been living for forty years on a free lunch, manna from heaven. They did not have to work for it. Indeed, they were effectively prevented from taking any advantage of such a bonanza. It was simply their daily bread to which everyone had a right, and of which no one could take more than he needed for himself on one day. If you ate more, it would make you sick. If, with far-sighted business sense, you stocked up on it, you would find yourself properly rebuked, for the stuff rotted and stank after twenty-four hours, except on the Sabbath. Every attempt to make the manna an object of free enterprise was ruled out. This was the ultimate free lunch. On the day the people entered the promised land, Moses told them that from then on there would be no more manna, but the free lunch would continue without a break. For in this hill country, he explained, they would be just as dependent on the rain of heaven as they ever were on manna from heaven for their sustenance and God alone would provide it as ever. And what would they do to keep it coming? If ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, that thou mayest gather in thy corn, and thy wine, and thine oil. And I will send the grass for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. And what were the specific commandments they are thus enjoined to keep? That is what Deuteronomy is about. A large part of the law is taken up with forms and observances. In particular, all the people are required to come together at regular intervals to celebrate, feasting and dancing together with great rejoicing, both to thank God for the abundance he had given them and to solicit a continuance of his bounty. Everybody was to have a good time and observe perfect equality in all things, seeing to it that nobody went hungry or neglected. With the first harvest in the new land, they were to bring a basket with samples of all the first fruits in it, place it before the altar, and say, Assyrian ready to perish was my father, Amorite, meaning displaced homeless wanderer, vagrant, dying of hunger, and he hath brought us into this place, and hath given this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land, which thou, O Lord, hast given me. The starving Syrian in question was Abraham, the Hebrew, which also means a displaced vagrant. Saying this, thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord Jehovah thy God hath given unto thee, and unto thine house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you, to show the Lord... I have not transgressed thy commandments, neither have I forgotten them. If the people ever fail to observe this joyful activity of giving and sharing, they will suffer a complete reversal of all the promised blessings. Because thou serves not the Lord, Jehovah, thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. In bringing his substance to the Lord, every man shall say, I have brought away the hallowed things out of mine house, and then give them unto the Levite, and unto the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all thy commandments. What was thus hallowed or consecrated to the Lord's work could not be used for any other purpose. It was still manna, and not negotiable. 
In passing through any field or vineyard in Israel, anyone was free to take what he needed if he was hungry, as the Lord and the apostles did. If the owner denied him that, he was breaking the law. If the person took more than he needed for lunch, then he was breaking the law. It was still manna. When gathering harvests, said the law, never go back to make sure that you have taken all the olives, grapes, or grain of your farm to the barn or to the press. That may be sound business practice, but the Lord forbids it. Some of it must always be left for those who might need it. From the wine and olive presses we get the word extortion, meaning to squeeze out the last drop, another way to make a margin of profit, putting the squeeze on, wringing out the last drop. The Latter-day Saints, like the ancient Israelites, are to accept God's gifts gratefully and not by extortion. The primitives and the ancients everywhere celebrated the free gifts of heaven with seasonal rites closely resembling those of the Israelites. The ritual showering of food from heaven was an important part of the ceremonies, dramatized by the actual throwing down of food and tokens from a high platform, mobile or stationary, into the crowd of worshippers. To these rites, which we have treated at some length elsewhere, Israel added a strong sense of moral obligation. Under the Mosaic law, everyone was constantly being tested for his generosity quotient. For, as Brigham Young often reminded the saints, God has placed whatever we have in our hands only to see what we will do with it, whether we will waste, hoard, or bestow it freely. Though generosity cannot be legislated, no one in Israel could get out of taking the proper test to show how far he was willing to go, granted complete free agency in carrying out God's express wishes regarding the distribution of his bounties. A tribute of a free will offering of thine hand was required of everyone. The offering could not be evaded, but the amount was left entirely up to the giver. A free will offering, according as the Lord has blessed thee, or, as the Septuagint puts it, to the limits of your ability. The amount is left up to you, because it is you who are being tested. Thus, at the end of six years, a servant must be allowed to leave the master absolutely free of all obligations, and thou shalt not let him go away empty, no, nor with two weeks' severance pay either. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock, and out of the floor, and out of thy winepress, of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And then comes the most important part of the test. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him. It is how you really feel about it that counts. If you hear of a poor man in the neighborhood, thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. It is not sound business sense, obedience to orders, compliance with custom, or recognition of duty that are being tested, but the feelings of the heart, the capacity for compassion. No one is ever to charge interest for a loan, and every seven years all debt shall be automatically cancelled. Only by such a sweeping and uncompromising order as the Lord's release can men break the insidious network of indebtedness by which Satan holds all mankind in his power. But one may not refuse a loan because the Lord's release is near. 
in which whatever you lent will not have to be paid back. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, the calm, appraising stare. And thou givest him not, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. This is an example of that meanness of spirit that offends God more than anything else. We have no laws ordering men to be charitable and open-handed, or penalizing that meanness of spirit that so often means an enhanced profit, for the obvious reason that no one can know what is in the heart of another. But God knows, and meanness of spirit is the one thing he will not tolerate. If one loved God with all his heart and soul, and his neighbor as himself, few, if any, laws would be necessary. For such love, said the Lord, comprises all the law and the prophets. Laws against base and contemptible actions are unnecessary for people to whom such actions are themselves unthinkable. Thus, to bring a flawed offering to the temple may be a shrewd and thrifty move, but it is an abomination unto the Lord, because it is also a mean and petty thing, as are also double bookkeeping and different sets of weights in business. For the strong to take advantage of the weak is the standard pattern of meanness. Israel is not to pull its weight against weaker nations, nor meddle in their affairs, even in her own interest. The greatest of curses was reserved for King Amalek, because he attacked the feeble ones who lagged behind when the Israelites were passing through his land. Israel must never forget any favor shown them by another nation, even reluctantly. Ingratitude is meanness. To make merchandise of another's necessity is an offense to human dignity, though it is the basic principle of present-day employment practice. Thus, if one takes a captive woman to wife and then wants to get rid of her, she must go her way free and not be sold for money, for thou shalt not make merchandise of her. Anyone who takes advantage of a virgin must marry her and pay her father handsomely, for he hath humbled her. One who is just married is not permitted to go to war, for by law he must stay home one year and cheer up his bride. It is base to question the virginity of a bride, and one who refuses to beget issue by his brother's widow is openly held in contempt, though he cannot be punished, he has offended her human feelings. One is required by law not only to shelter any escaped servant who flees to one's house, but also to treat him well, living in his new home where it liketh him best. And what is more, the benefactor may not grumble about it. The slave's humanity outweighs all other factors. Particularly reprehensible in Israel was the withholding of lunch from the helpless, the best-known rule of all being that thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn, that is, to keep him from eating any. We are told that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah put nets over their trees to deny the birds their lunch, and Abraham, seeing it, cursed them in the name of his God. The Ammonites and Moabites were under a special curse for having refused the Israelites, their enemies, bread and water while marching through their lands. Aid and comfort to the enemy, indeed. The iron law of wages may never be invoked in Moses' world. Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, that is, by offering him the right to work on your terms. Some of Moses' laws would be quickly repealed by our present legislatures, 
such as that making it a crime to pretend not to notice when another man's ox or ass has fallen down and needs help. Even as a priest and Levite once looked away from one lying helpless and bloody by the road to Jericho. Regardless of expense, every man must put a railing around the flat roof of his house, lest somebody fall and get hurt. That smacks of safety inspection, anathema to industry and especially to our Utah congressman. Private Property In all the law of Moses, with its perpetual concern for giving and receiving, there is never any mention whatever of who deserves what, whether rich or poor, or who is worthy to receive what he needs. God maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, the just and on the unjust. Need is the only criterion where lunch is concerned. Those who basely set themselves to scrupulously calculate the exact point at which they can open or close their hand to their brother, with meticulous definitions of the truly needy, should consider how much of what they are giving is truly private property, since the law of Moses deals impressively with the concept. The words property and private have the same root and emphasize the same thing, that which is the most intimate and personal part of an individual. The Oxford English Dictionary specifies privatus, peculiar to oneself, that belongs to or is the property of a particular individual, belonging to oneself, one's own, and proprius, own, proper, property, the holding of something as one's own. Both definitions fall back on Old English agen, expressing tenderness or affection, in superlative, very own, Webster has Latin privatus apart from the state, of or belonging to oneself, single, private, set apart for himself. What is privatum or proprium is therefore peculiar to one person alone, not a corporation. It is something that I could not do without under any social or economic system, and that would have little interest for anyone else, such as my clothes, shoes, books, notes, bedding, glasses, teeth comb, and so on. Because they are personal and indispensable to me, and of no value to anyone else, they must be inalienable to me, for there is great danger if they fall into the hands of another. The bully on the block who grabs another boy's glasses can get him to do almost anything to get them back, because he must have them, and the bully knows it. The mill owner who threatened to withhold lunch from the workers could always get them to work on his terms, claiming their lunches as his private property to dispose of as he chose. These two totally different views of private property are sharply contrasted in a case often brought to mind by Brigham Young in telling of the good Latter-day Saint businessman who buys a widow's only cow from her for five dollars, and then goes down on his knees and thanks God for his peculiar blessings to him. The widow's cow was truly her private property, and by the law of Moses could not be taken from her. But old Bessie was something wholly different to the man who saw in her only an addition to his profits. He had no more personal interest, that tenderness and affection for one's own, than a dealer has for a thousand acres of canyon land, set aside by God as the proper sphere and element for his other creatures, that he bought last month, hoping to sell it next month to a Chicago syndicate or Arab oil emir for a neat profit. 
Such cannot be called private property at all. But lunch is. In Israel, every man received a plot of ground, assigned by lot as his inalienable inheritance. It was his lunch and could never be taken from him, even because of debt. It was only as much land as he could quicken by his personal labor and loving attention, and no more. The same rule was observed in the settling of the Salt Lake Valley, where no man was allowed to buy and sell land or take more than he could cultivate. The small farm bestowed from tribal lands was also lunch and independence to the early Romans. But when the conscript fathers, claiming special privileges by divine decree for and by themselves, seized thousands of farms from the plebs to create their immense estates, as the English and Scottish lords did in the 19th century enclosure movement, they forced the former owners either to stay on the land and go on working for them as serfs, for lunch only, or to move to the city, where the emperor, as God's vicar on earth, provided the famous bread and circuses. The landlords, the industrialists of the time, did not contribute to the public lunch, which was a ritual and sacred affair, the food and lunch tickets being actually showered from the skies by the emperor, acting as the kind and generous father of all. This should be noted here, because bread and circuses are routinely deplored as the cause of Rome's decline. What made them demoralizing was their secularization. In the later Rome, in which money was everything, nobody took the divine scheme of things seriously. See the Roman satirists. Lunch was lunch, and nothing more. Rome's Zion passed away with Numa, the Roman Enoch. So once lunch was taken care of, the poor Roman had nothing to do but go to the shows and support the political candidates who spent the most on getting elected, while the rich enjoyed their notorious Roman banquets and the depraved pleasures that went with them. For without a sincere religious awareness, the free lunch corrupts rich and poor alike. It is the recognition of divine law that both sanctions and requires the free lunch for everybody. The closing chapters of Deuteronomy describe point by point the calamities that will befall Israel if every item of the law is not scrupulously observed. It is the exact reverse of the list of blessings promised if the law is kept. And these terrible things are more than warnings. They are specific prophecies of just what is going to happen and just what did happen to Israel, because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. The identical situation obtains in the Book of Mormon, to which we now turn. King Benjamin and the Free Lunch In the time of Lehi, to judge by the Lakish letters and other evidence, the ruling party in Jerusalem was sponsoring an enthusiastic revival of the law of Moses in its purity. The trend is signified by the large proportion of personal names ending in Yahu or Yah, referring to Yahweh, Jehovah the Lord, who gave the law. Five hundred years later there was another such revival among the Nephites, led by a pious and learned king, Benjamin who was determined to preserve the same law in its purity. The name he gave his son, Mosiah, is clear indication of the survival of the tradition, of which King Benjamin, by his dedicated studies, was well aware. At the end of his reign, he does exactly what Moses and later Joshua did. 
he summoned all the people together in the great annual assembly, they brought their firstlings with them, to hear a final exposition of the law from him as he handed over the rule and priesthood to his son. His great farewell address covers the same points as did that of Moses, yet it is highly original. In both books, Deuteronomy and Mosiah, the great discourse on the law is divided into two parts. The first deals with the nature, importance, and purpose of the law. The history of Israel is traced from the beginning and the steps by which the people were brought to a knowledge of Jehovah, recounting their trials, tribulations, follies, punishments, and rewards. The holy nature of the covenant they have entered into is presented to them, and the glorious rewards and terrible punishments connected with it. In both books, the promised rewards are the same. You will prosper in the land the Lord has given you. Heaven and earth will bring forth in abundance. You will never have to fear a foreign enemy. Success and security should be yours for a thousand generations. That ye may prosper in the land according to the promises which the Lord made unto our fathers, says Benjamin, consciously appending his words to those of Moses. Ye shall prosper in the land, and your enemies shall have no power over you. For his great farewell address, Benjamin summoned all the people to gather by families around the temple, bringing the firstlings that they might offer sacrifice and burnt offerings according to the law of Moses, that they might rejoice and be filled with love towards God and all men. There you have it in a nutshell. He begins his discourse on an economic note. I have not sought gold nor silver, nor any manner of riches of you. I myself have labored with mine own hands. I can answer a clear conscience before God this day. Learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. I, whom ye call your king, am no better than ye yourselves are. He is setting the keynote, which is absolute equality. And that follows naturally from the proposition that we owe everything to God, to whom we are perpetually and inescapably in debt beyond our means of repayment. In the first place, ye are indebted unto him and will be forever and ever. Let no one boast that he has earned or produced a thing. Therefore, of what can ye boast? Can ye say aught of yourselves? I answer you, nay, right down to the dust of the earth. It all belongeth to him who created you. It is his property, not yours. What is more, no one can even pay his own way in the world, let alone claim a surplus. If ye should serve him who is preserving you from day to day, and even supporting you from one moment to another, I say if you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet ye would be unprofitable servants. In other words, consuming more than you produce, unable even to support yourselves. And what do we do, then, to qualify for his blessings? Behold, all that he requires of you is to keep his commandments, and he has promised you that if you would keep his commandments, ye should prosper in the land. It never fails, says Benjamin, if ye do keep his commandments, he doth bless and prosper you, and in return... Ye are eternally indebted to your heavenly Father to render to him all that you have and are, which is simply the law of consecration. In his preliminary address, Benjamin, like Moses, 
impresses upon the people at length the great importance of the instructions he is about to give them, their binding obligation to keep them, and the great rewards that will follow. He purposely gets them into a high state of anticipation by telling them, confidentially, that what he is about to give them was made known to him personally by an angel from God, so that this is indeed a divine restoration of the law that is being celebrated. Furthermore, he assures them that it is all good news, that thou mayest rejoice, said the angel, and that thy people may also be filled with joy. For all this looks forward to the coming of the Lord. Eager as they are, the people must again be cautioned before the law itself is set before them. For though the law of Moses is adapted to their weaker natures, these people, like those taught by Moses, remain a stiff-necked people. And after all God did for them, yet they hardened their hearts. For the natural man is an enemy to God, and will be forever and ever, unless he becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things. At this point, Benjamin again follows Moses' example by declaring that the words which the Lord thy God hath commanded thee shall stand as a bright testimony against this people. Thus ended the first address of King Benjamin, by which the people were quite overcome, crying out for forgiveness and receiving a manifestation of the Spirit that filled them with joy.